Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. That's IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at IPA and your host for this episode. I'm back with another Freight Friday edition of First State Insights, brought to you through a partnership of IPA and the Delmarva Freight Working Group, an ongoing transportation planning and economic development partnership coordinated by IPA, the Delaware Department of Transportation, and Delaware's three metropolitan planning organization, the Dover-Kent County MPO, the Salisbury-Wacomico MPO, and WMAPCO. My guest is Sal Mercagliano. Sal is an associate professor at Campbell University and the chairperson of the Department of History, Criminal Justice, and Political Science. He's a graduate of the State University of New York Maritime College and a former merchant marine. He also earned an MA in Maritime History and Nautical Archaeology from East Carolina University, and a PhD in military and naval history at the University of Alabama. He's a frequent contributor to the industry news sites G-Captain and Freight Waves, and he hosts the show What's Going On With Shipping on YouTube. On April 21st, 2022, I spoke with Sal about the state of maritime shipping as we navigate our way out of both a pandemic and a supply chain crisis. We covered major takeaways from the recent groundings of the container ships ever given and ever forward, and we discussed the need to raise the visibility of the maritime industry in the U.S. Let's get to the conversation. Sal, thanks for joining me this morning. Oh, happy to be with you, Troy. So I wanted to start with some things that have been in the news with, with global shipping and maritime shipping in particular. And I kind of blank on the date of when all, this all happened, but there's a lot of fascination around Ever Given and you know blocking the Suez Canal for a period of time. And I, I would say kind of considerably less with Ever Forward, closer to home in, in the Chesapeake Bay. Could you put both accidents in a bit of broader context? Like what, what should the general public be taking away from these incidents? Sure. So uh, both of them took place in March, uh, Ever Given in March of 2021, uh, Ever Forward in March of 22 of 2022. It's not springtime unless an evergreen ship is getting grounded somewhere, it seems like now. Both those ships are really interesting for this reason. Number one, Ever Given is what's referred to as a Suez Max vessel. It's, it's designed to go to the limits of the Suez Canal. Ever Forward, which grounded in the Chesapeake Bay, is a Neo-Panamax vessel. It's designed to go to the limits of the Panama Canal. And they represent really the, the pinnacle of sea transportation right now. You know, there are container vessels. Containerization has been in place since 1956 when Malcolm McLean introduced the concept of intermodalism and containerization. And we are at the point right now where the bulk of our kind of manufactured, uh, assembled goods, and even some raw materials travel the world's oceans by containerization. You've seen a traumatic increase post-World War II to the modern day of how much cargo moves by the world's ocean. About 1950, you're looking at about half a billion tons of cargo. 2021, you're looking at 12 billion tons of cargo. And in both the cases of Ever Given and Ever Forward, Again, they represent this kind of absolute edge of where we're at in terms of the technology ever given. Almost 1,300 feet long, carries 20,000 containers, uh, just a, a massive vessel. And when she went sideways in the Suez Canal in March of 2021, she blocked 12% of the world's trade routes. And that's why that incident caught everyone's attention for, for that reason. And also because it was a human issue cause. Uh, largely, it was weather. It was it was the crew operations. 
And, you know, we like to think that, okay, you know, we're in a world today where we've got enough checks and balances on transportation. Our transportation and our logistics is handled by multiple sources. Nothing can, you know, stop it. And yet one ship literally plugged the gap and halted the flow of goods that caused a domino effect down the entire supply chain. You know, one of the things we've learned very recently since COVID in March of 2020 is that when you have a single issue in the supply chain, it can actually resonate through the whole supply chain. And when the supply chain is under max pressure like it's been, all you need are these events to take place and it creates a domino effect down it. Ever forward in the Chesapeake Bay, same thing. You know, we're all cognizant of the delays that had happened last year and still going on right now at LA and Long Beach. One of the reasons you have a ship like Everforward is it bypasses Los Angeles and Long Beach, uses the new lane of the Panama Canal opened in 2016, and now can come to four ports in the United States, in this case, Savannah, Baltimore, Norfolk, and New York, and offload and go right back. And, you know, previous to 2016, the biggest ships you can bring through the Panama Canal can handle about 5,000 boxes. Everforward can handle 12,000 boxes. And, and this is part of that really interesting development we've seen in the supply chain where shipping and freight rates had gotten so low pre-COVID that it was almost invisible, the ocean freight cost on goods. You know, if you look at a 40-foot container, if you load that full of phones, for example, the cost per unit to ship is almost nothing. It's less than a penny. Uh, And even when freight rates increase to a large amount, that freight rate didn't really transmit as much to the cargo unless you're talking about large bulky cargo. And so I think both Evergiven and Ever Forward really demonstrate our dependency on ocean shipping for our commerce. And in terms of that dependency, I mean, we see trucks on the road, we see the Amazon vehicle delivery in our last mile package, for example. But for the general consumer, how likely is it that it was on a container, in a container, on a ship at some point in the journey? Well, it's, it's almost definite that it was in that container. And, and, you know, one of the things I always talk about is, you know, you talk about that last mile delivery, which is so important. You know, when you sit there and you hit your phone and you hit that Amazon button and you're hitting that next day delivery, that package has already been moving for 120 days. And, and, and a large chunk of that has been in an intermodal container, whether it starts in Asia, loaded on a ship, coming across the Pacific, and then being offloaded. And, you know, one of the things that we forget is the initial concept of intermodalism when Malcolm McLean created it in 56 was, you know, you load the goods in the container, you seal it, and you never again open that container until it arrives at its final destination. That's not the case anymore. We know that because what's happening is those 20 and 40 foot containers are arriving in ports in the United States. They're going into inland distribution centers to be opened up, restuffed, repacked, warehoused. For later on distribution, you know, what you see going up and down the road typically are not 20, 40 foot intermodal shipping containers. It's 45, 53 foot vans going up the road. And then, like you said, that, you know, less than truckload, the, the last mile delivery system is what we're seeing. And, and that's all because of the, ch- the way we changed our consumerism, this new idea of, of I don't want to say just in time logistics, because it's not just that, but it, it is. It is this kind of push button logistics where we need to have warehouses and distribution centers stockpiled with goods. I think this is why COVID had such a massive impact because what happened is the buying habits of everybody changed. 
And, you know, what was the normal flow of goods that were coming across and arriving in early 2020 now is not what the consumers are buying. They've changed their buying patterns. But the shipping market isn't as quick to dynamically change to adjust for that. Plus, you have to hedge your bet. Okay, is everyone going back to work now? When's the next pandemic going to hit or the next virus going to hit? And, and so this is why we're seeing warehouses jammed to the roof. This is why we're seeing the, ship, uh, the shipping terminals jammed with containers, because everybody is hedging their bet. They're bringing over as much goods as they can to have you know, basically inventory, but it's pressing the system, especially on the ocean side. And on that point of the shipping market, not as dynamic as we you know, might want to just kind of respond on a, on a whim to how the consumer and businesses are acting. One of the things that came up, I think, early in COVID and is still being talked about, Wall Street Journal had an article on it just this week, this notion of nearshoring, so that we've, we've gotten so far flung that we react and are affected by you know, the Suez Canal being blocked, which I don't know how you get away from that, but you know, there's a lot of blockages and a lot of domino effects that can impact us. And there's this notion that if we brought things closer to home, so-called more predictable markets that might improve the situation and reduce these congestion points for American consumers and businesses particularly. What does that look like if kind of played out on the maritime front in your mind? Well, I I mean, obviously nearshoring, everybody was talking about it for a while. And I I always kind of hedge back. It's like, as long as the transportation costs are lower than what your nearshoring startup and production costs are going to be, you're going to keep shipping it that long distance. And I think that's something you see. I I mean, one of the things we've seen in the shipping industry is massive consolidations. We've seen consolidations in the shipping lines. Nine big companies handle 85% of the world's ocean containers. Uh, We see consolidation of the ports. I mean, ports have gotten big. LA and Long Beach represent 40% of the inbound and outbound containers in and out of the United States. And, you know, the concept of, of onshoring is a really interesting one because I, I always debate, is it going to be onshoring into the United States or is it going to be into the American continent? Because I think that's where you, you tend to see it, Central America, Latin America, South America, potentially. I, I think, you know, even the shutdown of the Suez Canal, for example, I mean, the shutdown of the Suez Canal was not going to stop ocean freight. I mean, you, just because you have a ship sideways, they were going to go around Africa if they had to. They just didn't want to. And we've seen that happen. I mean, they closed from 1967 to 1973. And for eight years, ships had to go around. And what happened is ships got bigger and they larger. Shipping, shipping accommodates. They will shift. They, they, will, they will change. It takes time to do that, but they will adjust over time. I, I think the problem you have right now is even if you see freight rates or, or, for example, spot rates, which are the rates you get last minute, it's not the long-term negotiated rates, but we're talking about spot rates. Those are the ones that went up tremendously. They went from $1,500 across the Trans-Pacific to 15, 20,000 for a time. People were still paying that because they knew getting the goods over was more important and sometimes than the cost, the reliability, for example, to, to push yourself to the front of the line. And until we can shift that, I, I think only certain commodities make sense to onshore, the big bulky items, the low value items. Those make sense in some ways if all of a sudden your freight rates go up through the roof. But to go back to the, you know, the phone charger or the cell phone, I, I don't see those onshoring at all because it's, it, it's again, the, the per unit cost is so small. Now, the other factor, as you know, you have to have in this 
is what happens when it's not just the ocean freight, but it's the warehousing, it's the inland distributions uh, cost, the trucking, the rail. When all of that starts escalating, because it does, it magnifies over time. It's not, you know, one, one freight rate isn't isolated from the others. Then you may see that impetus, but it, it's really hard. You know, it's funny. I, I had a student in one of my classes, a graduate level class, who's in the automobile manufacturing, and they were talking about this issue of offshoring. And he says, you know, for a car manufacturer to shift a production, it takes five to seven years of track record with a company before they can shift and start putting those parts into a vehicle. And, you know, it's not like something you can do very quickly. It's like, okay, we can get this other component now down in Mexico or Honduras. I just don't know how quick we can adjust to it. I think we need to be thinking about it. I think we need to diversify our production, our transportation a lot more than it is. I think we've become overly reliant on some sectors and companies. And that's probably something that we should really take a closer look at. And I guess one of the factors in terms of are we going to do anything about so-called shipping crisis and thinking about ever given and ever forward are, are these things anomalies? So how common are kind of the incidents like ever given, ever forward at different scales? Are they growing in number? Give us a sense of that kind of from a context perspective. Sure. So, you know, one of the things we keep talking about in the supply chain is these black swan events. And, you know, a black swan is supposed to be rare. Well, we got the whole flock right now, you know, and it just seems like we're being dive bombed by them all the time. And and ever given and ever forward are representative of a key thing. Ships are getting bigger. It, it's it's kind of I mean, why ships get bigger is very simple. Economy of scale. You make a ship longer, wider, deeper. It carries more cargo. And the expensive element on a ship is fuel, propulsion and the crew. And it is much more cost efficient to have one big ship than to have two or three smaller ships. And so we're, what we're doing is we're pushing the scales. And so, for example, Everforward going into Baltimore, one of these new Neo-Panamax vessels, the Port of Baltimore dredged the harbor. They dredged the Chesapeake. They brought in new cranes to handle this. And, and so you see the shoreside infrastructure accommodating these vessels. But what we're missing is key other elements of the infrastructure to handle these. So ships go aground all the time. This is n- nothing unusual. The problem is when a ship the size of Ever Given or Ever Forward go around, they're a much larger scale. And things like as simple as tugboats, dredges, uh, firefighting gear afloat is geared to ship sizes 20 years ago, 30 years ago. They haven't quite kept up with where the technology is today. So you had that great image of Ever Forward, you know, five tugs trying to pull her off at the end of March. And it, it was never going to happen. I, I mean, the ship was stuck. I mean, the ship had run aground at 13 knots in, you know, draws 42 feet of water. And she went into 18 to 24 feet of water. And even the guys in the salvage I talked to said, yeah, we knew we weren't going to get her out, but we had to try. And, and, and they realized they had to dredge and bring in bigger tugs and, and take containers off. And I think that's really the element is, is keeping the infrastructure up to handle these vessels. Because as, as long as you you know, say you can take bigger ships, they will come. You know, Suez Canal announced an expansion of the Suez Canal recently. They're going to widen it and deepen it because of what happened Whatever given. What they didn't announce is, hey, we're going to halt the size of limits on the size of these vessels. They never said that, which means that as soon as you make that canal wider and deeper, you're going to get bigger ships because it's just more economical for that. Now, container liners are also realizing, too, that you create congestion in doing this. 
And so some of the things they're looking at is some alternatives, some smaller vessels that can go in some smaller ports. And I think it's a great opportunity for the United States. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about in port infrastructure is giving out these port infrastructure grants. And I think the tendency is to invest in the big ports, the LA, Long Beach, the New York, New Jerseys, the, the, the Savannahs, the Houstons. But we really need to look at other ports that could potentially take smaller size vessels and basically provide better coverage for us. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. And, and I think even the container liners are looking at that. Smaller vessels, they can go into smaller ports. This way, they can carry high-priority cargo. When, when LA and Long Beach back up, you can go into Port Wyneme, or you can go into Houston or Portland, Oregon, and, and don't have to use shoreside cranes. You can use cranes on the ships. So all you need is a dock. And, and I think that's the flexibility that we see. Amazon demonstrated that. Amazon, you know, during the height of the supply chain crisis, were chartering ships, putting their containers on board, and going to piers without container cranes and offloading them themselves. They were basically bypassing the ports to get the high value cargo in as quick as they could. And, and unfortunately, we don't really have a national port strategy. You know, what, what do we think is the best deal? Should we go for the four corners strategy? LA, Long Beach, Houston, Savannah, New York, New Jersey, four big mega ports, cover the country, perfect. Or should we, you know, be investing in the smaller ports? Let's, let's get the, the smaller ones up. Do we need a new port on the West Coast? You know, something new being created. You know, Singapore is building a brand new terminal, brand new port. You know, is that something we should be looking at on the West Coast? That, that's a big issue, I think, that we're missing right now. And I, I guess there, there is a bit of an opportunity with the bipartisan infrastructure law to kind of think about some major investments in ports. I mean, if you, you kind of had your way, what, would, what kind of investments would you like to see emerge out of that over the next several years? Yeah. So, I mean, the federal government does have a bit of an oversight over those grants because, you know, the Maritime Administration, which is the federal agency under the Department of Transportation, which is supposed to promote shipping and, and, and commerce in the United States from the ocean side, uh, you know, they, they approve those grants. But, you know, they tend to approve the grants based on the proposals that come in. Oh, that sounds great. Here's, you know, here's a, a slice of the uh, grant. They don't have a real good strategy, and that was that'd be my issue with it. I think I think we really need to develop. Okay, this is the priority for allocating this grant money. You know, what are you doing to you know develop smaller ports to do it? And, and it's difficult because of containers. Containers are big. You know, a 40, 40 foot container can weigh fifteen tons, and and that means you need cranes, you need laydown area, and you know, in smaller ports, the roads. I I, I mean, a little you know local town all of a sudden has tractor trailers rolling through them. They're cracking the roads. You know, it's infrastructure, bridges, everything you need there really needs to be looked at. And I, I think we need to determine, do we want to keep investing in LA and Long Beach, which are, you know, downtown areas, not, not conducive to traffic and, and moving. Uh, and, and you have to look at the situ situation, not even just the ports. You got to look at the whole holistic. You know, I, I've always made the argument that the the four leaders under the Department of Transportation of maritime, aviation, road and rail, what I call the four horsemen of transportation, should be you know, co-equal and really be developing a, a national infrastructure development plan. Because it really goes hand in hand. You can build the greatest port in the world in, in Northern California. If you don't have road, rail, it's useless. If you look at a port like Savannah, for example, Savannah took a concentrated effort to develop that port. They dredged it. They're located on a key hub, I-95, and I think it's I-26. 
Uh, they've got railway, they've got an airport, and most importantly of all, they got tons of land to put down, lay down areas for warehouses, distribution centers. You know, that's that's a key thing is where do you want to see development? Developing in downtown LA and Long Beach doesn't work. There's no land. There's there's no land. The only option you have is to go out into the ocean, which is environmental issues, which is tough in California. And and so, you know, I th- I think we need more transparency and better people in key positions. Uh, you know, the appointment to the maritime administration tends to be very political and, and not someone who has a lot of big background in the shipping industry. I think that needs to change. I, I think there really needs to be a, a, a higher level of attention to the maritime sector within the federal government. You know, right now it's, it's, it's a subset under the Department of Transportation. And in truth, the other ones who really need to be involved more than anything else are the shippers, the Amazons, the, the, the Ikeas, the local chamber of commerces. You know, Amazon go charter ships. They can do that on their own. You know, the mom and pop hardware store in, you know, downtown Wilmington, Delaware can't do that. So they need what, what works for them in this system. And that's the type of representation. We kind of saw that with the creation of these uh, supply chain boards that the Biden administration set up. Uh, but I, I think they tended to go very high in their businesses. They weren't looking across the board at a lot of the smaller ones, but it's the shippers. The shippers are the ones who are hauling the cargo. It's their cargo. And they really need to be the ones who are saying, this is what we need and what we would like to see. And in terms of the visibility of maritime versus, let's say, the trucking transportation sector, I think we all kind of, we see trucks on the road, we get our driver's license when we're 16, we kind of identify with that sector. They see things on our you know, on our neighborhood streets that are trucks bringing things to our home. We don't see that in the same way with shipping. And, you know, in, in the same way, we see stories about trucking, truck driver shortages, for example. But we don't, at least I don't, see articles about the same, same things in the maritime workforce. Could you give us a little bit of, uh, of insight into kind of what's the status of the U.S. workforce relative to the maritime industry? Where is it and where, where do you think it should be? Sure. So, uh, I mean, obviously, the the U.S. Merchant Marine in particular has fallen. I mean, it's just been a precipitous decline since World War II. Come out of World War II, the U.S. Navy and Merchant Marine number one in the world. The U.S. Merchant Marine was hauling sixty three percent of the world's cargo, uh, and and you know through a concentrated policy, we realized that wasn't the best thing for the world. And, and we, you know, to our credit, you know, basically Marshall Plan shipyards and ships out to everybody. And what we've seen is a gradual decline. So now we're the 21st in the world today. You know, we operate about 180 deep draft ships in the coastal and international trade. Uh, China built over 180 ships last year just in one shipyard. So, you know, it, 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 it's a lot different today. Uh, I, I think when you go to the visibility side, I think that's the key because, you know, one of the things we've done with shipping is taking it out of the public view. You know, the, the shipyard, the ship. Terminals are off limits to everybody. You can't get on it. You need, you know, a TWIC card, a transportation workers ID card. Uh, you, you, they're not in the mainstream. You just don't see it. And I think when you take something out of people's visibility, they lose sight of it or interest in it, and they just don't know about it. And I think that's why stories like Ever Given and even Ever Forward capture people's attentions because here's a maritime story about something they don't know a lot about. They see it in passing. But they don't know it. I mean, how many people go on a cruise ship and don't realize that ship is flagged in Liberia or Panama or the Bahamas? Uh, you know, where the crew is not American, it's it's from overseas. 
And which is fine. I mean, we, we, we're dependent on our transportation. There's 1.8 million mariners from around the world to, who move, you know, 50,000 ships all the time. But, you know, most of those mariners come from the Philippines, from China, from India, from Indonesia, and from Russia. And, and you know, we depend on them for the movement. Uh, and when you place a large portion of your transportation outside of U.S. control, well, then you're dependent on that outside control to ensure the safe movement of our goods. And, you know, I, I'm a big advocate for I think we need more U.S., not total. I think that's un- unrealistic in many ways. But, you know, I think I think more U.S. involvement would be great. Uh, the problem is it's expensive, you know, to build ships in the United States is more expensive than to build them in China where they're heavily subsidized. Uh, the crew members, U.S. crew members are going to want a U.S. salary and wage versus somebody from Indonesia or India. Uh, so you get that cost. And, you know, what there needs to be is coherent policy to help offset that difference is, you know, tax policy, you know, if, if it's a subsidy program of some kind, uh, what do you want? Because again, it, it's also dependent for, you know, do we care how, do I care where my goods, who ships my goods when I go to Walmart? No, you know, all I want is, is my shirt to be nice and cheap. And so I want that low transportation cost. However, we're a military power. We're a superpower. We have military overseas. Uh, can we depend on foreign flag shipping to move our goods? That comes in as an, an issue. Do we need U.S. mariners and U.S. ships for that? And, and that's where I think the overlap needs to be. I think we need to do a much better job educating people about the maritime component. I'm really hard on what I call the MCU, the maritime colleges and universities. Uh, I think they need to do a better job getting that information out. They are, again, just like the maritime industry, great at talking to their own people, but they need to send their students out, their their graduates out as advocates for the maritime industry. And same thing for the maritime administration. You know, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines do a great job at telling their history and what they do. The maritime industry, not so much. And and I think that's a uh, big problem. And I also think for academics like us, we don't know the industry. It's really hard to learn it. It, it. It's not one that's really easy to learn. You know, when I deal with Evergiven, for example, you're dealing with a ship that was Panamanian registry. It was owned by a Japanese company for a Taiwanese company with a German company getting the crew who was Indian with, with, with a British and, and Japanese insurance classified in the United States and grounded in Egypt. So, you know, unless you have advanced degrees in maritime law to really weed through it, it's difficult. It's, it, it's not an easy topic. And I think we just need to do a better job of introducing people to this idea of maritime commerce and transportation. And you have a YouTube channel, What's Going On With Shipping? I wonder what your plans and ambitions are for that moving forward. Uh, you know, it's funny. As, as an academic, I had a YouTube channel and I just put videos I liked on it. And every now and then I'd put a video on there of a, like a presentation I gave if I had it. And so it was like, I had like a couple of hundred subscribers and everything. And whenever given when ashore in the Suez, uh, I'm a contributor to gcaptain.com, which is a maritime news site. And the editor of gcaptain called me whenever given when ashore and said, hey, can you do a interview with BBC on this issue? And I did. And for like six days, it was nonstop interviews after that. I was doing them like crazy. Uh, my YouTube channel had three views the day before Ever Given. And like the next, the next, the day Ever Given went ashore, it was 3,000 views. And, and, you know, I'm up to 42,000 subscribers and over 4 million views. 
And, and what I find is, is, you know, when, when you have a, a, a niche and, and you know, a topic and you can present it in a way so that people understand it, not dumb it down, but make it understandable to them, provide them sources so that they can go look up the material to show that, listen, I'm not making this up and you can go look, here's where it is. Or if you want to do more research, go here. And, and, you know, and that's what I do. I do about two, three videos a week and really kind of open it up. Now, some of the videos are niche for what I like. And some of them are these big general ones kind of, you know, I do one every week, at the beginning of the week called what the ship, where I look at the five big maritime stories and try to, you know, take five stories and put them together. And what does it mean to you? You know, if you're watching this from United States or Australia or Ireland or Africa or Asia or wherever you are, you know, what does this mean to you? And why is this important to you? You know, why is the merger of two of the biggest tanker companies important, for example, you know, because we're seeing consolidation in the tanker industry. What does that mean going forward? And, and you know, what, what's the big play on that? You know, and so, again, you know, take those complex issues, kind of, you know, find what the, what the, the thread is that's really important and then make it relative to people, why, why they should know about it. Because people want to know. And, and one of the things we have today is this opportunity to watch YouTube videos and podcasts where they can basically, you know, find some information that maybe they couldn't find in the past. Well, I thank you for taking the time to put some of these things into context and for joining me today. I look forward to tuning in in the future. Thank you very much, Sal, for your time today. Thanks for the invite, Troy. I appreciate it. To track Sal's work, check the show notes to locate him on Twitter or search for and subscribe to his YouTube show, What's Going On With Shipping. For details on the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration, visit our website at ipa.udel.edu. Thanks for tuning in to this special Freight Friday edition of First Aid Insights. Reach out with comments, subscribe to the podcast, and tune in again soon. Take care.